to open up God's word uh, with you this morning. And so we're going to be continuing in our series, Life, uh, through the gospel of uh, John. So if you have uh, your Bible with you, please turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. Last week we finished up uh, chapter 1. We made some progress, and uh, God willing, we're going to finish chapter 2 today, but uh, no promises, okay? (laughs) John chapter 2, we'll get there in just a few. Well, many years ago, I had a a conversation with a friend um, who was a a skeptic of uh, the Christian faith, and uh, he really wrestled with why, if, if God exists, why does he not reveal himself to the world in miraculous ways today? And he said to me, if God would just give me a sign, Chris, then I could believe He goes on and says, if God, for example, and he points at a table, if God would just lift this table off the floor and thereby defying the laws of science, namely gravity, then I could believe. But Chris, he hasn't done that. And because he hasn't done something like that, I'm not so sure I can believe in your God. You know, I honestly really appreciated his openness and frankness and honesty. I don't know, maybe, maybe you're here and you can resonate with that. Maybe, maybe you're here and struggling uh, with some uh, uh, skepticism about the Christian faith. And can I just say, hey, I'm really glad you're here this morning. This is a safe space for you to come and wrestle and ask questions. I don't know, too, maybe, maybe uh, uh, that isn't your struggle. Maybe, maybe it's a, a different kind of a, a struggle. Maybe you're, you're struggling with seeing God bigger in your life bigger than the problems and struggles and trials that you're facing currently. Or wherever you're at this morning, let me just encourage us with this. The gospel of John is an apologetic for the Christian faith in that it anticipates our doubts and unbelief. And it reveals who Jesus Christ is and shows us how truly awesome he is through signs. So if you're here wanting to see a sign to either believe in Jesus or to strengthen your faith in Jesus, then let me introduce you to the gospel of John. In fact, uh, this is the whole uh, purpose of John writing his gospel under the inspiration of of, uh, God in the first place. Here it says in John 20, verse uh, 30 and 31, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. You see that? Signs which are not written in this book, but these, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, God anticipated that we would struggle with believing in him, and so he has given us uh, a book full of signs, and in particularly, this gospel that we're uh, studying here. Now, I have to Uh, give us a a little bit of a caution um, because God may not give us the signs that we want, but he gives us the signs that we need. And last week we saw uh, John the baptizer proclaimed uh, Jesus to be the lamb of God. He said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then uh, Jesus then uh, grabs a couple of disciples and begins to build his ministry team uh, with them. And he says, hey, follow me. And by the way, you are going to see greater things in the days to come. 
And now here in chapter 2, from this point forward, this gospel now begins showing us that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm excited to unpack that a little bit here uh, with us uh, today. So let's, uh, uh, let's dive in here to John chapter 2. Now the first thing uh, that we see here uh, in John chapter 2 is that the Lamb of God reveals his glory. Uh, the Lamb of God reveals his glory. Look with me here at verses 1 and 2, please. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his uh, disciples. Let me pause here. Uh, the third day that it's referencing here is, is likely the third day since Jesus arrived in Galilee after he called Philip to follow him. We saw that last week. And that, that means then that this wedding is taking place likely in the first week of Jesus' public ministry. So from the time that, that Jesus is baptized by John the baptizer and then declared or proclaimed to be the Lamb of God to this point is roughly about a, a, a week, a week's time. And it says that this wedding is in Cana. It's a, a small village or town in uh, that region. And Jesus' mother was at this wedding. And, and Jesus was invited as, long, as well as uh, his uh, disciples. And uh, so that means it's quite possible that this wedding is a family member or a close family friend. Now, let's uh, pick up here in verse 3. It says, when the, the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Wedding celebrations in the Jewish culture were big deals, uh, more so than they are to us. Um, they could last up to a week uh, at a time. Uh, so they were not short e events. And also I'll just note that uh, hospitality was of prime importance in their culture. Um, they put a premium on hospitality. And so with the wine running out here, it would have been viewed as rude and inconsiderate by the guests. And then uh, the Jewish custom in that day was that the groom and his family were responsible for hosting the wedding and the celebration that followed. And so running out of wine then would be very embarrassing and even dishonoring to, um, uh, to the groom and his family, especially, by the way, since they lived in a shame-based society. And so Jesus' mother knows this. And so uh, she comes and she tells him and says that they ran out of wine. And I just have to note here, she's not just telling Jesus to keep him in the loop, <laughs> to keep him up to date on all the latest wedding gossip. Um, <laughs> when, my, when my daughters uh, run up to me and they, they're like, Daddy, Daddy, there's a spider in our sunroom. They're not telling me that just for informational purposes, Right? <laughs> Uh, so I, my response is not going to be, oh, that's, inf that's, that's exciting. I'll just ignore that uh, room for a while, right? No, they want me to go and, and do something about it, right? Um, by the way, I'll just, just note, I, I found this out um, about five years into uh, fatherhood that uh, Dad the Spider Assassin is written in invisible ink on every birth certificate. <laughs> and I have a PhD in it. <laughs> Daddy, why are you up that tree screaming? <laughs> Similarly, uh, Mary wants uh, Jesus to do something about the wine that's running out. Now, uh, Jesus' uh, response here is pretty curious. I heard a few of you snicker. Um, word for word translated, his question to her, his, his initial response to her is, is this, what to me and to you, woman? 
Now, we have to be careful and not read our, our own cultural acceptances into uh, Jesus' day and age because uh, Jesus' use of this word mother, is, he's not being disrespectful. In, in that culture, it had the force of ma'am, okay? Now, I don't suggest any of us work, try that out with our mothers, right? But, but in that culture, that was acceptable. It was, it was ma'am. And uh, so Jesus was being polite here. And the question that he asks, what to you and, and, to, and to me, or what to me and to you, is a, is a, a Semitic idiom. We have uh, idioms in our own English language. It's uh, sayings like this, or phrases like this, raining cats and dogs, or uh, uh, break a leg, or when pigs fly so on and so forth, right? And so too was it uh, the case for uh, Jesus's day in their language, they had idioms. And I'll just note here, that most of the commentaries see Jesus rebuking his mother here. I just gotta tell you, um, the more I studied this this week, the more I just struggled with that that's not what's going on. Based upon the, the context of, of what follows here, uh, for example, Jesus follows up the question with, my hour has not yet come. Uh, if we keep reading through the Gospel of John, we see that phrase repeated over and over again. And, um, and what it means is, is uh, or refers to is Jesus' time to die on the cross. So there's that. Uh, add to that, also note that wedding celebrations and free-flowing wine in the Old Testament were often associated with the Messianic age where uh, the Christ, the Messiah comes and, and brings salvation to his people and there is a glorious wedding celebration and feasts with free flowing wine. And so in that messianic sense, Jesus's hour has not yet come because he has not gone to the cross. There has not been a resurrection. And so the messianic age is actually just beginning. Jesus is just getting started. And so it's likely Jesus is communicating to Mary that something bigger is going on here in this wedding than just running out of wine. A greater wedding celebration where the wine will never run out is coming. It's just not here yet. Whatever uh, is fully meant between that exchange with, with uh, Mary and, and, and Jesus, she must have understood what he meant because what does she do? She turns to the servants and she goes, hey, listen to do what he says. What I love about that is she responds to Jesus in faith. She goes to him, she tells him the need, she leaves it in his capable hands, trusting that he's gonna do with it what he knows best. Hmm. Sounds a lot like what you and I need to do in a daily dependence upon the Lord too, doesn't it? We need to tell Jesus what our problems are and then we need to trust him with doing what's best. Look here what Jesus uh, says next here, um, or does next. Now, verse six. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 uh, gallons. Um, let me pause there and explain that just a little bit. These large uh, stone water jars were for Jewish purification rites, which involved uh, some intricate hand washing and foot washing um, in accordance with the Jewish law and tradition of that time. Now, everyone at the wedding would have been required to perform a ceremonial washing before they ate. So it makes sense that these jars are here for that purpose. I'll just note too, the fact that there's six of them that holds 20 to 30 gallons each should indicate to us that this was a really big wedding. 
There were a lot of people there, and it probably lasted quite a while as well. Let's pick up here in in verse uh, 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feasts. So they took it. And when the master of, of, of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Master of the feast here would, would be sort of like the, the wedding coordinator. Um, now imagine his surprise. He, he knows the, the wine has run out. So imagine his surprise when the servants bring him uh, a cup of, of wine and, uh, and then he, he tastes it. And it says here that only the servants knew where it came from. He doesn't even ask. So he takes it to the, the bridegroom and he, he says, uh, hey, you've saved the best wine for last. Which ironically... Uh, he assumes the bridegroom is responsible for saving the wedding. Jesus doesn't get the credit here. The bridegroom gets the credit for saving the day. But in a double twist of irony, the bridegroom does save the day because we find out here in John chapter three that Jesus is the bridegroom. I'm telling you, friends, we can't make this up. God's word is awesome here. And to see what's so sweet about this is that Jesus was under no obligation whatsoever to fix the problem. Their problem was, so to speak, not his problem. It was a miscalculation by the groom and and the groom's family. And so Jesus didn't owe them anything. And yet, what do we see here? Well, what we witness here is the Lamb of God reveals his glory through grace and truth. You see, Jesus spoke the gracious truth to his mother And then he immediately follows that out with pouring out his truthful grace on everyone by turning the water into wine. There's no fanfare about it, by the way. We don't even know when exactly it turned into wine. That isn't the point. And Jesus didn't have to do that. You see what John's doing here in this gospel here? He's pointing us back to chapter one, verse 14. Namely, that uh, the word became flesh. And what does it say? The word is full of grace and truth. And here we see grace and truth poured out on this party, wedding party. And see, uh, Jesus perfectly blends. He doesn't balance grace and truth. He blends grace and truth together so that what comes out is nothing but glory. And in the grand and and glorious story of redemption, Jesus steps into the details of people's lives and rescues them from disaster. And I am so thankful that Jesus has stepped into my life and rescued me from several disasters, the worst of them being, namely, eternal separation from him. That's grace. That's truth and action. See, Jesus cares about the big overarching gospel story where he will manifest his glory more fully through the cross and the resurrection. He cares about that, that's important. But he also does not overlook the daily minutia of our lives. He steps into it, he cares. And he pours out his grace and truth. So let me ask, in what ways did Christ 
sends you waves of his truth and grace this week? Think about that. Maybe you should uh, write it down and maybe share it with small group this week. I mean, think about the hope that we have in, in just this one act by Jesus. He is the, the better bridegroom and his is the better celebration. And when Christ returns, by the way, the second coming, uh, Revelation 19 talks about a wedding feast that's going to take place between the lamb, Jesus, and the bride, the church. And it will be the wedding feast and celebration to end all others. And everyone who follows Jesus has a seat at this celebration table. And we will feast with the lamb for all eternity. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Bring that in. Not only does the lamb of God, though, reveal his glory through grace and truth, but let's not overlook the fact that the lamb of God reveals his glory through divine power as well. And look here at verse 11. It says, uh, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. This miracle we're told here is, is the first of Jesus's signs. And throughout this gospel, we see this, this pattern of sign miracles, and all of them are for the express purpose of showing us, of revealing that Jesus is God. I mean, do you know of anyone who can change water into wine? That's a divine act. Only God can do that. And he does it by his divine power. It says here that Jesus, through it, reveals his glory. You know, glory is God on display. And we see God's glory displayed through Jesus' radiant beauty, majesty, grace, truth, power, and authority, all right here. If I can say it this way, Jesus is God's glory personified. He is the exact imprint of the divine nature, He's the, the radiance of the glory of God, Hebrews 1.3. And so when Jesus manifests his glory, he's actually showing us who he is. Namely, he's God. And so our call here, friends, is to see this, this merging, this blending of grace and truth, this, this divine uh, power and, and believe in him. That's it. Of course, if it was that simple, everybody would do it, Right? But we're, we're meant to believe in Jesus just like the disciples did. Question, do you believe? What do you believe? Not only that, John continues here in uh, chapter two and what we're gonna witness next is that the Lamb of God reveals his glory. The Lamb of God reveals his glory. Look with me here in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple 
uh, or in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with uh, uh, the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will uh, consume me. So scholars debate ad nauseum uh, the chronology of this event that takes place here with the cleansing of the temple. Some say, uh, there's really two primary views. Some say that um, there are uh, two cleansings of the temple. There's this one that sort of happens near the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And then there's the second one that happens the last week of Jesus's uh, ministry. Um, uh, so there's that view. Then there's the other view that there's only one cleansing of the temple. That's the one that happens at the end of Jesus's ministry and that John chooses to step out of chronology time-wise and bring this event into uh, the picture in the forefront here uh, because he wants to weave this theme. You can debate that, you can uh, research that. Um, I've myself have changed my mind three or four times this week as I studied it, but here's the point that we shouldn't miss. Um, it actually doesn't matter um, it, because it doesn't help us to understand what's going on here any better or any worse. We can still understand what, what's going on here. It's the time of Passover. Jesus uh, goes up to Jerusalem. And by the way, how interesting uh, uh, that just last week we saw that John the baptizer is proclaiming that Jesus is the lamb of God. And now here we are at Passover time, Jesus is in the temple, the lamb of God in the temple where the Passover lamb is sacrificed. I'll just make a note here though, <laughs> that Jesus at this moment is not the lamb to be slaughtered. He's actually gonna roar like a lion. And when Jesus gets to the temple, he sees that it's more a house of trade than a house of prayer. And so he, he makes a whip and he drives all the business out of the temple. And John notes that his disciples remembered uh, Psalm 69, verse 9, that zeal for the Father's house would consume him. And the Lamb of God reveals his authority by cleansing the temple. Jesus uh, displayed his authority in the temple. He calls it his father's, my father's house. And if it's his father's house, then guess what? It's his house as well. And if it's his house, then he's in charge of what's going on inside of it, right? And he can do whatever he pleases. And he does because he quite literally cleans house. <laughs> and see, the, the Jewish leaders though, they miss this point. They miss it. Now look here in verse 18. This is fascinating. Watch what they ask him. Watch what they ask him. So the Jews, that would be the Jewish leaders or Pharisees, said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and believed the scripture and the word that Jesus uh, had spoken. You see, uh, the Jewish leaders, they, they asked Jesus uh, for a sign, but Jesus just gave them a sign. <laughs> that The cleansing of the temple was the sign that demonstrates his divine authority. It, it, no one else has the authority to do that. 
in the house of the Lord. But that wasn't the sign that they wanted, see? They wanted a different sign. But Jesus doesn't even immediately give them the sign that they wanted. He somewhat uh, mysteriously here uh, says that uh, if they destroy the temple, he will raise it up in three days. Now imagine if we didn't have the parenthetical pause there um, of John explaining what Jesus meant and we had to wait to the end of the story to find out, right? It would require us to know our scripture, by our Bibles, Old Testament scriptures really well, which the Jewish leaders did, by the way. What's Jesus actually talking about here? Because they miss it. They, they don't understand what he's talking about. Well, we're told here that Jesus is actually talking about his own body. <laughs> that doesn't become clear until after the resurrection. And it says that, that the uh, disciples remembered Jesus' statement and believed in him and the scripture. They didn't just, it's interesting, they didn't just believe uh, uh, Jesus' words and recall what he said here. That was part of it. But it says they believed scripture, which means that the scripture, the Hebrew Bible at that point, had something to say that was pointing toward this new temple. And they believed it after the resurrection. And so what we see here is the Lamb of God reveals his authority by declaring a better temple himself. The temple uh, uh, in, uh, in scripture is the, the locus of worship. It's the center of, of worshiping God. And the practice of worshiping God in the temple was supposed to always prepare the hearts of the people for that time when the new temple, Jesus Christ himself would come and they were to worship him. And by his death and resurrection, we can now approach and access God directly. There is no veil. There is no priest we have to go through. We can approach the throne of grace and ask for mercy and help in time of need. And again, we have to recall chapter one, verse 14, where it says the word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. Jesus Christ became flesh and tabernacled with us. Jesus is the, the new temple. And what we see uh, Jesus uh, doing here is cleansing the temple and declaring that a better temple has come and is dwelling among them. And man, they missed it. But so would have we. And this is the second time in this chapter where we see the disciples are believing uh, Jesus' signs. Our call here is to see this divine authority, the manifested uh, glory in the flesh and believe even more deeply like his disciples. And when we see, by the way, when we see Jesus more and more for who he is, it should lead us to greater delight and joy and trusting in him. Walking more, more closely with him, abiding with him more and more on a daily basis. But it's very interesting now how this uh, chapter closes out here. Uh, let's look at here in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, he being Jesus, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. And when they saw the signs that he was doing, what Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because 
He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What an interesting way to conclude this whole uh, section here. We see it's a, we're told people saw his signs at the Passover, which means he was doing some other things that were uh, not part of the story here. But Jesus did not um, entrust himself to them because it says he knows what's in their hearts and he knew that many of them did not believe in him. See, it's possible to believe the signs, but not the one doing the signs. I mean, if you and I knew of someone um, who could do legitimate miracles, uh, wouldn't we wanna go see for ourselves? Wouldn't that draw a crowd? That would get our attention. We would wanna go see it. I, I, I mean, wouldn't that be entertaining to actually see somebody do something that's scientifically impossible? But just because we see the miracle doesn't mean that we believe the one doing the miracle is the savior of the world. And that was the case that was going on for so many people back then in Jesus' day. They believed him to be a miracle-performing prophet, a good teacher, but not that Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, many of them were more interested in the signs of Jesus than in the Jesus of the signs. Amen. Which means then that mere belief in Jesus's miracles does not automatically mean one is a follower of Jesus. This begs the question then, why is it that some of us see Jesus's signs and our souls are stirred up to uh, belief, while others see Jesus' signs and remain in unbelief. Isn't seeing believing? Apparently not. You see, at the core of unbelief, Scripture teaches this, at the core of unbelief is the suppression of truth. And God has, has made it plain to us his invisible attributes of eternal power and uh, uh, eternal uh, divine nature through general revelation, creation. And even more specifically now for us in scripture, his special revelation. But see, people in their unbelief, they suppress this truth about God of who he is and they become futile in their thinking. And then they take the truth and they throw it on its head. They invert it and they deceive themselves and then believe a lie instead. I mean, just look at the Jewish leaders. As we continue to go throughout this gospel, watch them. That's exactly what they do. They su suppress the truth, they invert it, and then they believe a lie. And what God has, has done so graciously is that he has given us a savior full of grace and truth. And we have a, a savior who is uh, the way, the truth, and the life. And no one goes to the father except through him. That means there is no other way to life. It's only through Jesus. Amen. Amen. You see, God just knows that we would struggle with our unbelief of him. He knew that. He knows that we, we continue to wrestle with that and to struggle with that today. And so what did he do? He sent us a savior that we need and he gave us the signs that prove he is that savior. We are without excuse. 
And so this morning, Jesus is, is saying to you and to I, hey, I am the lamb of God. I have, I have taken away the sin of the world. I have revealed my glory to you through grace and truth and my divine power. I've revealed to you my authority by cleansing the temple and telling you that I am the new temple. Will you believe in me and worship me? Or will you suppress the truth and worship a lie? You remember my uh, skeptic friend I mentioned earlier who wanted to see a miraculous sign, sort of the, this is uh, the Paul Harvey rest of the story here. Um, after genuinely sympathizing with him um, in, his, in his struggle, you know, I, I confirmed that, that God actually still does miracles to this day, <laughs> even if we can't always see them or it's um, not readily apparent. But, uh, but I quickly added though, but what's more important than that is that God has already given us an entire book detailing the signs of who he is. Sadly, my friend was not interested in those signs. He felt dissatisfied because God did not give him the signs that he wanted. And truthfully, because of our own self-deception, if God had raised the table and levitated it and defied gravity, my friend probably still wouldn't have believed. So he walked away in unbelief. God may not always give us the signs we want, but he has given us all the signs that we need to believe in him. So what should we do with this? Well, Jesus' early signs manifest his glory, they strengthen his disciples' belief in him, and it begins to show us that he is the lamb of God. And so first of all, our, our call here is to believe in this lamb of God, to turn to him, to trust in him. And then for those of us who have, secondly, our call is to continue entrusting ourselves to him daily, hourly. My wife recently uh, gave me a placard for my office that says, keep trusting the one who keeps you trusting. I'd like to give her credit, but I can't. Somebody else famous said it, but that captures it. Keep trusting the one who keeps you trusting. That's what following Jesus looks like, friends. And so this week, believe and keep trusting in our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, no matter what happens. Behold, the Lamb of God has taken away the sin of the world. And so God, we praise you for that. We love you for it. We're gracious and grateful. God, help us to not take that for granted ever. But Lord, many of us in this room believe, but we also have unbelief. And so would you help us in our unbelief? Would you continue to uh, help us to see the signs here in your word that you've given us so uh, that we can see them and, and believe in who you are and what, what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. So strengthen our faith, Lord. There are some in this room who may not even have faith in you. God, would you open their eyes so that they may see wondrous things? Might they walk out of here 
knowing you. God, manifest your presence here with us. Be with. Thank you for your glory that you put on display in Jesus Christ. We behold him. We worship him. And may, when when he returns, may he find praise on our lips. To your glory and our joy. Thank you in Christ's name.